1: I heard tell show. Uh, It's a Tuesday, folks. Uh, March the 22nd of the year of our Lord, 2022. That's a whole lot of 22s as we march through this year. Springs are coming in a hurry and we're enjoying life and hope you are as well. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for joining the program today. A lot of stuff to cover. We're going to continue Uh, to talk about the war in Ukraine, Vladimir Putin's war crimes against that country, the economic impact of what was supposed to be, quote, fortress Russia. We'll get into how that didn't exactly work out the way Vladimir Putin planned it. Uh, Also, to end the show, we always end on a happy note. uh, Tom Brady came out of retirement, which was great for everybody, except for the person who paid a lot of money for his, quote, unquote, last touchdown pass, which now looks like probably won't be. But there's a happy ending and a lot of money to charity going in that story. Also, a topic we cover frequently on this program, mental health, specifically children and adolescent mental health coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. We're going to turn down the noise on that once again with an article out of The Washington Post. And a great guest today, Kelsey Grant. Uh, Young Voices contributor. She works in the oil and gas industry, talking about in energy, uh, doing some advocacy with energy and environmental concerns. Energy is a big deal uh, since she started writing on the piece that we're going to discuss today. Uh, Russia's attack on the Ukraine brought energy policies more into focus. Uh, how those things work? The nasty C word that folks don't want to talk about. Talking about carbon. Uh, things like that. What should and shouldn't be taxed? How we deal with energy policy? Kelsey Grant on the program today. Great guest, great conversation. Looking forward to bringing you that. Uh, but first, let's talk Supreme Court nominations. Uh, we touched on it yesterday briefly. Uh, Monday saw the beginning of the hearings for Ketanji Brown Jackson uh, hearing. She's going to be the next Supreme Court justice, barring something really nuts. But we're going to go through this dog and pony show of a nomination hearing let's compare this for the other big thing going on right now, the NCAA tournament. And what does that got to do with the nomination process? Well, the NCAA tournament is really interesting because people get really excited about it. They get excited about the teams. They get excited about the underdogs at St. Peter's this year, messing up everybody's bracket. They knocked off Kentucky. If you go who exactly, that's the point. You always have these upsets and these Cinderella stories. And then the blue buds come in and usually end up winning the tournament. And it's always great fun. The thing about the NCAA tournament, though, is you're caring about teams and you're caring about players and you're caring about programs and you're caring about games that you normally don't care about. It's not me saying that. We have things called ratings. We know you don't care about them. You care about them when it comes time for the NCAA tournament. You don't really care about these smaller schools. You don't really watch their games. But if you put them in the NCAA tournament and they start upsetting people, all of a sudden you really, really care. So here's the thing. Something changes based on the circumstances, and it changes based on when it happens and who it happens with. In the NCAA tournaments, the immediacy of the tournament, one and done, you know, win and go home, advance, no matter what, these sorts of things give an immediacy and importance that otherwise wouldn't be there. So now all of a sudden you care about these small schools that you don't know any of the players of, and you don't know any of the coaches. Uh, College basketball ratings are going down and down and down, but March Madness ratings stay up. Why? The immediacy of it. All of a sudden, you care because it's a tournament. What does that got to do with Judge Jackson? Well, simple. When she was confirmed to the Circuit of Appeals back last year in 2021, none of you cared. Very few, if any of you, paid any attention to her hearings then but you're all paying attention to her hearings now. Why? Expediency. Like those smaller schools in the tournament, all of a sudden now it matters more because it's a Supreme Court nomination. Now, her qualifications didn't really change all that much in the last couple, a little less than a year. What changed was the circumstances. What changed was the stakes. Now people are invested more. But she didn't really change that much. In fact, she was confirmed in that vote 53 to 44 there was there was three senators who did not vote for various reasons uh and there was republicans that voted for her back then that may or may not vote for her now folks should probably ask them why looking at you lindsey graham how you doing good to see you remember when you were fed up with trump and then you're not fed up with trump and all that yeah see senator graham and other folks they tend to change how they view things Based on the circumstances, oh, now I know folks are going to start howling and going, well, the Supreme Court, it's really, really important. I know that. I agree. We should be very uh, strict on who we let on the Supreme Court. But again, Judge Jackson did not change that much in a year. It's just the focus has changed. There's more of an immediacy. People are more invested now because it's tournament time. And now you want to pay attention to what's going on. Moral of the story, we should pay attention all the time to things like court appointments and nominees her judicial philosophies her background legally her the way she conducts herself personally and professionally almost none of that has changed in the last year it's just the supreme court title got slapped on it which brings in outside political things how you approach something like this how things change in the moment and how we perceive them usually doesn't tell us as much about the circumstances tells us a lot about us. So yeah, we get more excited because the stakes are higher because it's the Supreme Court. But shouldn't we always be like this when it comes to judicial nominees? Shouldn't we always be like this when it comes to political things? We should, but we're not. And that's human. Like the NCAA tournament, we can only pay attention in small doses to certain things. But we should at least be aware that that's what we're doing. It should help us keep our bearing. It should help keep things in perspective. And it should help Keep the caterwauling down when things happen like Judge Jackson getting a nomination process for the Supreme Court and people start trotting out things that are clearly nonsense and craziness for their own attention instead of trying to figure out if somebody should sit on the Supreme Court or not. Stick to the judicial philosophy. Stick to the matter at hand. Don't get tied up on what happened before. Deal with the matters at hand. Kind of like the NCAA tournament. We're going to do it again in the future. So don't make things that you're doing and the hills you're dying on this time too awful permanent we're just going to have to turn around and do it again you don't want to wind up looking silly later on enjoy the tournament enjoy the supreme court nomination process but keep both of them in perspective please more hotel right after this Hi, welcome back to Heard Tell. I'm Andrew Dawson Thank you so much for joining us. We talk about mental health on this program frequently. In fact, the last deep dive podcast we did was with Dr. Catherine Gordon. She's been on the program multiple times now, talking some mental health, specifically children's mental health, adolescent mental health coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. There's a story in the Washington Post. I don't want to read you the headline. I'm just going to read you the piece because I think it opens up in a helpful way. But mental health is something we talk about on this program because your politics and your culture and all that fun stuff don't matter a lot if your mental health ain't squared away. And too often folks have their mental health uncared for and it skews their viewpoint of the world, both with each other and the wider world as it goes. From the Washington Post uh, piece written by Judith Warner, we are in a deep in the grip of a children's mental health crisis. It's Washington Post. That's one belief that everyone in our deeply divided country seems to share. The headlines have been terrible. Eight-year-olds in despair. Their tank is empty. No way to grow up. Those are all quotes. Parents are frustrated, terrified, and increasingly angry. And they don't have to look far to find politicians and pundits who will channel their pain. Those with the loudest voices and the biggest platforms all appear to agree. The children's mental health crisis is a consequence of COVID-era political decisions, the child-sacrificing outcome of too rigid social distancing, too lengthy school closures, and too much mask wearing. Uh, As an aside from the piece, it's not just those policies, by the way. It's the schizophrenic and incongruent policies and changes in policies that our leaders use to affect those, but we'll deal with those at some other time. Uh, quote the pandemic's disruption have led to lost learning social isolation and widespread mental health problems for children the new york times david leinhardt summed up back in january in a much quoted newsletter he's right by the way many american children are in crisis as a result of pandemic restrictions rather than the virus itself that's an explanation that feels right particularly if you're one of the millions of parents trying to balance back to normal work expectations with continued chaos of your school-aged children's lives. It feels especially right if you're someone whose child pre-pandemic seemed basically fine and then just wasn't. But as the shrinks say, feelings aren't facts. The frontline providers who work with children have a different explanation. The pandemic hasn't created a children's mental health crisis out of nowhere. Rather, it's shown a spotlight on a catastrophe that has been hiding in plain sight for a very long time. This is not a new problem, said Sandy Chung, a pediatrician in Fairfax, Virginia, and president-elect of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Over the last several decades, we have seen an increase in mental health conditions in children and adolescents. There's a lot more to this piece you can read, but we've been covering this and we've been talking about it. Crisis reveals things. A lot of the problems in the COVID-19 crisis were not caused by the COVID-19 crisis. The COVID-19 crisis just revealed them. When you put things under stress, you start to see stress points. You start to see where weaknesses come from. You start to see how things produce under pressure because now they get bent and shaped and you can really get to the core of what they are. Crisis reveals things. And the COVID-19 crisis revealed that our mental health house is very much not in order in America for a lot of reasons both individually and corporately as a people. It's something we haven't been wanting to deal with. The stigma is going away where people want to talk about it, but the part of what to actually do about it hasn't quite caught up yet. That's why we keep talking about it on Tell. We're going to continue to talk about it. We're going to continue to have experts on to talk about it, because once again, crisis reveals things. And if our mental health is not in order individually and as families, then our communities, our regions... And our nation and our world are all going to suffer for it, as we're all suffering from something that could be treatable if we deal with it in an effective manner, in an honest manner, and directly, whether there's a crisis or not, preferably before, because during the crisis, is usually too late. More tell right after this. <music> Back to Herd Tell. Let's go back to the environment and climate issues. Kelsey Grant, another one of our great young voices contributors that we love to have on and to work with. Kelsey, how are you today?
0: I'm doing great. Happy to be here. How are you doing?
1: I'm fantastic. Okay. You are in environmental issues. You talk a lot about energy. You write about energy and the environment and climate, but your day job, you actually work with oil and gas companies. So, just as a way of introducing yourself and having us a baseline here. What is it you do with oil and gas companies?
0: Yeah, so I technically work in the oil and gas consulting world. Um, In a nutshell, I try to help oil and gas companies be the best that they can be. More specifically, we support oil and gas companies in being ESG aligned, in creating decarbonization strategies, and stakeholder engagement, in responding to a world with rising social risks.
1: Let's just start right there, though. People hear, okay, oil and gas, they kind of got an idea in their head what that is. Why in the world would that have social risk to it?
0: Social risk, um, in my definition, means combined policy, political, and community factors that could delay an oil and gas project. And so you might think, well, where does this social risk really uh, derive from? So as we know, fossil fuels have played an incredible role in supporting human development, and giving us the standard of living that we have today. On the flip side, there's also a real cost to using fossil fuels. And that cost comes from the emissions that result from burning fossil fuels. And uh, emissions have a real impact on our climate. And in the last several years or really decades, the public has been awakened to the potential effects of these emissions and climate change And so that has really contributed to an increasingly hostile regulatory, political, and policy environment for uh, oil and gas.
1: Okay, so let's just take the list you just mentioned. You got communities, you got companies, you got governments. Uh, We need good policy for all those, but isn't part of the problem right now that all three of those groups are more adversarial and in competition with each other about the policies instead of working together and trying to discuss them out?
0: Exactly. I think that's one of the key issues and reasons why we've seen so little progress on the climate issue, um, because it is so divisive. It is partisan. You have groups that should be working together and pulling from one another's strengths uh, to address the problem, but rather there are uh, competing objectives and goals that um, I think are stagnating progress more than anything.
1: Yeah. Talking to Kelsey Grant, um, you led off when you wrote about this in Real Clear Energy, a piece we recommend everybody go read. We're going to link it in all the show notes. Uh, You led off with just about exactly that when you said part of the problem here is everybody just wants to bash the ideas. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of productive counter ideas coming back. And that's where you actually develop policy and stuff. And therefore, everybody just kind of falls back on what they were already saying. And it becomes more ramparts than meeting in the middle, don't it?
0: People like to criticize what other people think, Um, and it's entirely unhelpful, Um, and it's only going to be able to do so much in helping us to address the problem and to uh, um, accelerate the energy transition in a responsible way.
1: Now, we have a real-world example of this. Uh, We know the Build Back Better uh, agenda was this monstrosity package. We know it's pretty much dead as far as dead goes for the moment. Um, depending on how you feel about Joe Biden and Joe Manchin, the two Joes on that front will probably be depending how you think about that whole package. But it is unmistakable that one of the real breaking points of this legislation was all the environmental stuff on it. Uh, the Democrats on the left really, really wanted that environmental stuff. The right and the Republicans were really dug in that they weren't going to have any of it. Why was that such a contentious part of this legislation?
0: Yeah. So first of all, the whole reconciliation bill was pretty divisive. Right. Um, But let's say just if we focus just on the environmental part, it's not surprising uh, because the reconciliation process is a partisan process. You only need 50 votes or majority votes, excuse me, um, to pass the bill. Democrats don't need to cater to Republicans and their concerns and their priorities to pass a uh, spending bill. So I don't really blame Republicans for not leaning into the the reconciliation bill because it didn't feel like one that was their own. They had very little leverage. With that said, um, the reconciliation process was still an opportunity for, I think, our Republican and conservative leaders to showcase uh, good, effective, market-based solutions. Um, We didn't see that really happening. Um, So in my view, I think reconciliation was a missed opportunity for Republicans, and leading forward, I think we should uh, reconsider how the Republican Party can lead on climate and energy policy.
1: And you mentioned it in your piece. One of the reasons that you think they should do something like reconciliation or at least some kind of a negotiation process is that you pointed out the only thing worse than just denouncing everything is when you denounce everything and you don't actually bring any idea of your own. And you see that to be a real trap for the Republicans and the conservatives here. Of Well, yeah, you're denouncing, 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 and that pulls well with your base, but you're not actually ever proposing anything. And it's going to just become one note at some point, isn't it?
0: Exactly. So this goes back to what leadership actually means. And leadership goes beyond criticizing and putting down ideas that you don't like. Leadership means that you're going to propose ideas that are much better um, than the alternatives.
1: And one of these alternatives is something uh the term might make some people recoil. So we're going to go nice and slow, use a small term here. Carbon <laughs> pricing. Now Everybody, just calm down. I know some of our conservative and libertarian friends are probably going to recoil because carbon has kind of become almost a bad buzzword when we talk about these things. So just explain it, though. What do you mean by carbon pricing?
0: Great. Um, First, I'm I'm happy you mentioned that. And I'm just going to encourage anybody in the audience uh, who is listening to reclaim these words and to think of them through a new conservative or libertarian uh, perspective. Um, So also to clarify, so carbon pricing is a broad term. Carbon pricing could mean cap and trade. Carbon pricing can also mean a carbon fee. In the context of our our conversation, I'm referring to a carbon fee, also known as a carbon tax. I know unfortunate buzzword there. Um, So at a basic level, or at least something really important to know about a carbon fee, is that it's an incredibly flexible policy and you can shape it really however you want. In my opinion, Um, Some versions of a carbon fee or carbon tax are better than others. But at the most basic and fundamental level, what a carbon fee is, is it places a price on energy relative to its emissions. So over time, consumers will be encouraged to purchase cheaper, low-carbon energy. uh, That can be natural gas, that can be nuclear, hydro, solar, wind, and then discouraged from purchasing uh, more carbon-intensive energy that's more expensive like coal. Um, A carbon tax is also pretty essential to creating an an economic environment that will support the development of other technologies that will be quite central to reducing our emissions like carbon capture. And even better, it enjoys the support of the business community, energy companies, and uh, conservatives, at least certain conservatives.
1: Yeah, certain conservatives. We're going to let all those conservatives and libertarian friends take a minute, let them breathe, let them absorb all that. Uh, We're going to take a break and come back more with Kelsey Grant. We're going to break down the carbon pricing model, what that actually means, what it doesn't mean, because there's some connotations to that. Some very surprising, uh, hardcore conservative figures of note who actually are okay with this, just in case you need to ease into the subject a little bit more with Kelsey Grant right after this on her tell. (laughs) Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Welcome back to her We're continuing to talk to Kelsey Grant, talking a little bit of climate and environmental policy, especially when it comes to fossil fuels. And we broached the C word, carbon. Uh, it had, like we said, it has a lot of connotation, especially in conservative circles. If you grew up on conservative talk radio, hearing about carbon offsets and carbon taxes and all that, that's kind of a boogeyman for a lot of people. But as you argue in your writing and your advocacy, this is something that it's an evolving idea. And the way people thought about it 10, 15, 20 years ago, maybe they need to reexamine it, don't they?
0: Absolutely. So uh, going back several uh, decades, uh, uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush was uh, responsible for implementing a cap and trade program that helped to reduce sulfur dioxide and to address acid rain. Um, uh, Ronald Reagan was responsible for helping to support the negotiation the Montreal Protocol. Richard Nixon founded the EPA and really supported the Clean Air and Water Acts. So there really is a rich, conservative, and Republican legacy in environmental stewardship, And conservation. And so it's basically what I'm basically encouraging um, conservatives who are a little bit more skeptical of those words, carbon and climate, to just return uh, back to our roots and our legacy. Yeah.
1: And of course, George H.W. Bush was an oil guy by trade. That's how he made his fortune after World War II. So he was a little bit of an expert on the field. Um, Doesn't this go to what you were talking about before? about if you don't have a good if you don't have a good idea you can't just say bad ideas because what happens here is just take that term carbon conservatives have kind of lost mastery over what that term means and it means all these other things now like you said isn't this just a perfect example of if you don't stay in the fight on certain things it's going to go to the other side and then you just kind of get lost when you try to come back to it
0: Exactly. So, to use a very cliche phrase, if you aren't at the table, you're on the menu. I think conservatives should reinvent their client playbook um, away from being on the defense and going onto the offense. So, it's quite common in conservative and Republican circles to rely on criticizing progressive policies. We kind of saw some reconciliation to an extent it was understandable given the partisan process of reconciliation but we see in other spaces too. So the majority of Republicans in Congress will be able to, would be very quick to denounce, say for example, the Green New Deal, dismiss it as a a socialist Trojan horse, but a fewer number would be able to say what the alternative to the Green New Deal should be. And that's a problem, Um, especially when there are fiscally conservative and market-based solutions um, that uh, is just waiting for uh, Republican support. And it's important to acknowledge, um, there's, an important, there's an important caveat to me saying uh, Republicans often rely on critiquing progressives. And that's this point. In recent years, Republicans have made huge strides in the right direction on climate change. And I would be wrong to discount that and to not give credit where credit is due. So for example, John Curtis in Utah, I believe last year he founded the conservative climate caucus. Um, Senator Braun in Indiana, he really pioneered the Growing Climate Solutions Act, which really empowers farmers in the ag community to partake in our climate solutions. You know, Senator Cassidy in Louisiana, which has been a very vocal support of uh, carbon capture and sequestration technology development in a state. And the list does go on. It doesn't go as, uh, on for as long as it should, But there really have been Republican leaders popping up in the last few years showing what it looks like for the party to lead on this issue rather than following Democrats on it.
1: Is part of this a terminology problem? Because I've kind of gotten to the point studying this stuff where I'm just I'm very content to just say I don't know about a lot of the climate change stuff. I'm skeptical of the you know, the world's going to end in five years. You know, you can miss me with all that nonsense is there a problem with pollution and stuff? Well, we know that how much of it's man-made, how much of it's natural. But my thing is I do care about conservation. I do care about, you know, the environment on that level. I grew up out in the woods. I would like everybody to have that opportunity. I grew up in West Virginia, which is, you know, pretty pristine as far as natural beauty goes compared to a lot of places. I like those places being preserved. Is some of it just nomenclature and terminology of like, Hey, we need, if you care about conservation, And if you're more of a conservative person and you have the concepts of stewardship already kind of ingrained in you, you need to be in these conversations because then you are the voice that's blunting some of that more radical, crazy stuff.
0: Yeah. So there is a serious language problem when we talk about climate change. So obviously, climate change is seen as a progressive issue. And typically, the only language we can recall when we think about climate, it's typically through progressive terms. Um, and those terms are fine. They relate to a certain subset of the population, but when conservatives are trying to engage in the climate discussion, they really can, might struggle in relating to the problem. So if you hear me talk about climate change, you're not going to hear me talking um, probably about down with capitalism, that we need to destroy capitalism to address climate change. You might not hear me talking about justice as much, What you'll probably hear me talking about is, like you said, stewardship. I'm a deeply religious person. I will tie it back to uh, my faith and creation care, stewarding what is good. And so that's the kind of language that resonates with me. And conservatives have this language, and you articulate it very well that you care about conservation. Um, but we just need more Republican proud voices using that language to discuss climate change
1: Now, to be fair to the conservatives that uh, kind of recoiled some of this stuff, you you said what has usually been a taboo topic in the past, but when you start saying the word tax and carbon tax and pricing and things like that, they naturally recoil and go, well, that's going to drive up costs, that gets government intervention. What's the retort to that? What's the explainer to that to try to get folks that, you know, usually raising taxes is a non-starter with a lot of those folks on any reason, but obviously we have to have some taxes for some things. Why would this be a good place for that?
0: Yeah, so this is a timely question uh, in light of where energy and gasoline prices are right now. And so it's important to acknowledge that on, on its own, a carbon tax is regressive on its own. But going back to an original point that I've made is that a carbon tax is an incredibly flexible policy and you can design it however you want. And I didn't address this in my article because you only have so many words that you can uh, have in, in an opinion piece. But there's actually a, a version of a carbon tax that addresses exactly that problem you brought up about energy prices. So you can actually, there is, there's, a, there's actually a, a Republican climate platform that's actually structured around um, this kind of proposal. But what you can do is in addition to a carbon tax, you can pair it with what is called a carbon dividend. And so what that is, it's a monthly rebate back to American households. So the government will take all the money that is generated uh, from a carbon tax minus a very, very small administrative fee, and they will dividend it back to every single American household. And what that does is it not only offsets the rising energy costs, for a majority of Americans, they would be left even more whole than they were before. And so it insulates them from these rising energy and gasoline prices. And you know what's even better is with that rebate or dividend, whatever you want to call it, each American is empowered and allowed to do whatever they want with it. They can use it to invest in their co- their child's college education. They can use it to buy a gun. They can use it to buy an electric vehicle. They can use it to put solar panels on the roof. They can do whatever they want with it. But at the end of the day, it would insulate them and protect them from rising energy costs that a lot of people should and already are deeply concerned about.
1: So you wrote this piece uh, before uh, the events in Ukraine. Russia invades them. Uh, obviously huge geopolitical ramification, huge energy and environmental and climate implications because of the uh, gas and natural gas pipelines that go through Ukraine to get to Europe. What's changed since then as far as the policies go? Because you're talking about things like carbon offsets, you talk about border policies. What's changed because of what Russia did?
0: Yeah. So in my article, I discussed what was called or what is called a border carbon adjustment. And I cite, a, I think, a fantastic article written by Senator uh, Kramer, the Republican Senator, on the topic of a border carbon adjustment and Russia. And so before I talk about what has changed since, since the invasion, I think I'll just list a, a few things or the a few um, benefits and advantages to border carbon adjustment and to take a step back what a border carbon adjustment uh, mechanism is is it's a fee applied at the border. So there's a a fee that is tacked onto carbon intensive goods coming into the United States or the country that has applied a border carbon adjustment. And moving forward, I'll also refer to it as a BCA for short. Um, So first, a border carbon adjustment is a way for the United States to capitalize on its already very carbon efficient processes at home, giving it an instant competitive advantage in um, the global markets against trading partners that are less carbon efficient at home. Second, it allows the United States to set the rules on um, climate policy and energy policy globally, posturing us as a leader rather than a follower um, into the 21st century on energy development and climate. And in relation to Russia, which is what the um, Senator Kramers article really had to uh, do with, is a border carbon adjustment has the potential to undercut Russia's uh, leverage over our energy-dependent EU allies. Um, so, you know, Russia's um, oil and gas exports um, make up about forty to sixty percent of the government's uh, revenue every year, and it's a really key leverage uh, leverage tool. For the United States. And in addition, with uh, in partnership with our EU, EU allies over um, Putin, and so then you asked, you know, what has changed since uh, Putin has invaded Ukraine? And so my opinions on a border carbon adjustment hasn't changed uh, necessarily. Um, I think it's a good policy for the reasons I just mentioned. However, there's something something that I've really gotten out of the uh, Russian-Ukraine conflict and in terms of how our our energy markets are are, are, um, operating right now, is we should address uh, energy policy with at least a little bit more humility. So what we are seeing with um, the energy transition uh, debate and energy transition narratives that have been unfolding is that people who had Um, Beliefs about the energy transition um, and climate policy before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they're basically using the invasion to affirm um, what they had already thought on both sides of the argument. And I really think that's probably an unproductive way for us to carry forward our uh, debates and conversations on energy. I think it's really important for us to step back and to try to be as humble as possible um, moving forward because there are balancing, there are considerations that we have to balance here. One is climate. And the other one, and this isn't—these are not the only two, but two major uh, considerations right now—is nuclear risk. And so, th- I think the question I'm really wrestling with right now—I don't have a perfect answer—is how do we pursue smart, responsible energy policy that doesn't uh, increase um, uh, conflict with uh, uh, countries like Russia that are being, are somewhat unpredictable, who have put their nuclear weapons on high alert. And so that's my biggest takeaway um, after the invasion is to just proceed very, very cautiously and humbly. And in fact, I think this, going back to the original point of my article is I think this is where Republicans would be very useful. I think Republicans could help support us in developing a very pragmatic, responsible um, approach to to, uh, approach to decarbonization policy at home and internationally.
1: Is this one of those things where we really do need to lead as a country because there's just no way to extricate ourselves from the wider world? We already know about wider climate concept. You know, people talk about, well, China's doing this and India's doing that and whoever. Is this just another example of why America needs to lead from the front on this so we do have a little bit of control when it comes to things like this?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, I have a firm belief that to, for a country to lead into, into the 21st century, they're also going to have to lead on climate and energy policy. Um, and it's interesting that you brought up uh, China. I mean, China is one of the, I think, the largest producer of solar modules in the world. And so they're capitalizing on the energy transition. And I would much rather that would be the United States. I'm sure all of us would much rather it would be the United States. And the view of a border carbon adjustment is it levels a playing field between com- countries like China, which have carbon-intensive processes for creating these technologies. In the United States, it has less carbon-intensive processes for creating these technologies. It allows them to compete on a level playing field in the global market. And so it's just one tool to help um, put the United States in the, the driver's seat of energy policy moving further into the century.
1: Yeah, I'm talking to Kelsey Grant, Young Voices contributor, been talking a lot of carbon, that C word, Uh, good stuff from you on environmental and energy policy stuff. Let folks know where your social media is, where you're writing and what you got going on so they can continue to follow you.
0: Great. So my Twitter handle is at Grant Kelsey. This particular article we've been talking about is from um, Real Clear Energy. I encourage you to check it out. And you can also find me on LinkedIn.
1: Yep. And she's one of our great Young Voices contributors that we always enjoy having. So we're looking forward to seeing what she has coming up next. Kelsey Grant, thank you so much for the time today, ma'am.
0: Great. Thank you so much for having me.
1: No problem. Anytime. back to her tell show let's go back to ukraine and vladimir putin's war crimes against that country um writing over in the wall street journal uh a long report called uh the failure of fortress russia this is pretty detailed stuff this is more of a homework assignment you need to go read up on this but we've covered it we've been talking about the fact that just the famine and destruction of interrupting the grain flow out of Russia and Ukraine to various parts of the world, that's going to kill a lot of people too. It just won't make the news like the bombs and the attacks will. Um, Russia has miscalculated Vladimir Putin to be specific because some of what he had been doing the last few years was that he could isolate Russia from the rest of the world from sanctions and such. But the argument that comes out of this Wall Street Journal piece was that what actually happened was that this is all backfired and uh, ed Morsi over at hot air our friend uh detailed this as well kind of how i found this but from the wall street journal piece uh quote russia spent years trying to wean itself off imported goods to fortify its economy against western sanctions now the impact of sanctions imposed after russia's invasion of ukraine has made it clear that moscow's efforts didn't work russia's continued dependence on imports means that it is facing a painful economic readjustment. Parts of Russia's auto industry are shutting down for lack of foreign parts. The country's flagship homemade passenger jet gets its engine and other key parts from overseas p- suppliers. Foreign pet food and medication have disappeared. Quote, import substitution has failed to achieve its goal of making R- Russia less vulnerable to sanctions like these, said Janus Klute, a specialist in Russian economy at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs. The Russian ambitions were unrealistic to start with because a small economy like Russia's. Remember, this is a huge country, one of the biggest geographically in the world that has an economy kind of comparable to Italy's, which is much smaller. It's always been a mismatched thing. The Russian ambitions were unrealistic to start with because of a small economy like Russia's isn't able to produce complex and high tech goods by itself. It's just simply not possible replacing the foreign products could take years. Ed Morsi wrote it this way. He said, it's not just Russia's small economy that made ambitions impossible, and perhaps it's more of a symptom than a root cause. The root cause is the corrupt autocratic system that runs Russia, which is what keeps its economy small and the people unmotivated to expand. So this exercise was doomed before it even got started. Even before Putin launched his war into Ukraine, evidence of failure abounded. Economic sanctions are going to cut in both directions, of course. as is in more sea riding and hot air now. It damages the economies of the nations that impose them as well as on the nations targeted. The point, of course, is to make sure most of the damage cuts against the target rather than the originating position. In that sense, it helps if the targeted nation has already started making it costly for others to operate in their space. That brings us to Vladimir Putin's newest best buddy, Xi Jinping, Z also has presumed a, pursued a similar economic program with China, where Made in China 2025 has been a policy for almost the same period of time as Putin's economic fortress Russia. Introduced in May 2015 by Z himself, the strategy aims at a little higher at global manufacturing leadership, but is based on the same amount of self-sufficiency. But the key difference? China has over a billion strong workforce. Their economic might buys them stuff on the world stage, That Russia cannot do. Russia is more of an importer. And when they have this sanction problem now, on top of the moral uh, repugnancy of what Vladimir Putin is doing in Ukraine and other parts of the world, which has brought into focus his many other crimes against humanity over the years, you have a hot mess that Russia is not able to weather like a China can. Now, China is going to predatorily date Buddy up to Russia. But it's not going to be enough to replace all the economic damage that the sanctions and just people getting moved away from Vladimir Putin are going to have as well. So the story, as you can read it in Wall Street Journal, you can also read Ed in Morrissey's piece, Fortress Russia, he thought he was building himself a fortress. Economically, though, he really just built himself a tomb, and the Russian people are going to suffer for it. More tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to the hotel. You know, we always try to end on a happier note or a good note. This is a fun one. Uh, a little bit of football notice for you, as you may have heard. Tom Brady, quarterback. Uh, a lot of people consider him the GOAT. I do. We're speak for themselves. Unretired. He retired. He was for it before he's again it. Now he's back from being retired. Uh, problem was, for one fan, this really wrecked their week because right before he announced his unretirement, that he was coming back, something interesting happened. This is from the sportingnews.com. Uh, Tom Brady rocked the sports world, announcing his intention to end his retirement last week, which ended about 40 days, and returned to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for the 2022 season. It's an update that should have Tampa fans jumping for joy, except for one unlucky fan, who is now likely cursing their terrible luck. According to Sunday's report from ESPN, the ball that represented Brady's last touchdown pass for now before he was going to come back, recently sold for $518,000 per auction site Leland's. Several hours after the story of the auction posted, Brady announced his unretirement. That would, of course, nullify whatever historic value the touchdown ball holds. To put it another way, someone who just paid more than a half million dollars for Brady's most recent touchdown pass, not nearly as valuable as his last touchdown pass, it is now worth one-tenth of its value, estimated to be about They lopped a whole zero off that bad boy. Well, here's where the story gets good, though. Word got back to Brady, and he wants to make it right. The Bucks quarterback tweeted uh, at FTX, a cryptocurrency exchange platform, that he has an ownership stake in to see about hooking up the buyer. He said in a Twitter post, Hey, FXT official, could we donate a Bitcoin to the charity of this person's choice? Uh, The current value of the Bitcoin is somewhere around $42,000. For those who are interested, that ball was from the 55-yard touchdown pass to wide receiver Mike Evans, which took place at the 320 mark in the fourth quarter of the divisional round game. This was a great game. Uh, Tampa Bay was down by a lot, had a furious comeback, fell just short at the end. And, of course, as we all know, the Los Angeles Rams won that game, went on to win the Super Bowl a few weeks later. Uh, The ball that Brady's first NFL touchdown pass recently sold for $428,000, it also reports that up to 23 people put bids on in put bids in on Brady's last touchdown ball, which of course now is not his last touchdown ball. However, uh, the one person who is happy with Brady's return, Rams cornerback Jaley Ramsey, who was the unfortunate defender who gave up the touchdown, said, Thank you, Tom Brady, in a social media post. Throw that last touchdown on somebody else. And charity's going to get a whole lot of money out of this, and somebody who was very upset. Can get a little bit of salve for the wound. That'll do it for her Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for being with us today. Please make sure you are subscribing. Doesn't matter how you're catching her Tell, whether you're watching on Facebook or in any of the podcasting platforms, please subscribe. A couple things that does one is it lets us keep track of who you are. Two is it makes sure you don't ever miss anything. Her tell every weekday morning. You get the good talks playlist interview. Every afternoon, twice on Sunday, on Sundays. When we do the long form deep dive podcasts on certain weekends, you'll get those too. All the back archived episodes. We're over 160 episodes and podcasts. It's a lot of material and it's all free. Only cost you a click as long as you are subscribed. You really want to do us a favor though, you can spend two clicks. All of those platforms have a share button. Put us on your social media. Share a good episode. Share one of those interviews that really hit home with you or you thought was good information. Let folks know that we are worth the most precious thing they have, your time, and we never want to waste it. We always want to give you good information, the most knowledgeable guests, and continue to turn down the noise of the news cycle as we press ahead on this thing called life, trying to discern the times that we live in. So, Till we see you tomorrow for more Herd Tell. We hope wherever you are across street or around the world that you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed. We'll see you tomorrow for more Herd Tell. Take care. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com. So-